Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show. Today, we had the pleasure of interviewing Elon Carr. Elon, under the Trump administration, served as the United States Special Envoy to combat anti-Semitism globally. This conversation covers the story of how Elon ended up in such an interesting and special role in society. We discuss how and what he was actually supposed to do in such an interesting role. We discuss his professional background that prepared him for this opportunity. We discuss Elon's views on responsible citizenship and the importance of spiritual groundedness across the world, as well as the importance of preserving religious freedoms across the world. And if you've listened to The Lewis and Kyle Show before, you'll know that we cover a whole lot more. I'm very grateful to Elon for giving us this opportunity to have this conversation with him, and I know you're going to really enjoy tuning in to this conversation. So that is everything from me. Before we get started, I'm going to switch over to the audio right now. Enjoy. Elon, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to be chatting with you today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Kyle. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you so much. You as well, genuinely. Um, I want to start out with the story asking you where you were, whether it was an email or a phone call or maybe something face-to-face uh, when the opportunity and or responsibility or the offer came to you to serve as the special envoy? Well, it's actually a great story because, you know, there's a there's a moral to the story. You know, I had run I had run for Congress and I I lost, but I did well. I did well enough to get to get noticed. And and you know, when you lose, it it not it's not pleasant, you know, and you you want to win and you, you know, it um it's kind of you don't feel good about it. And the actually the worst part about it is you feel like you let down your friends and supporters, the people who really believe in you, not only donated, maxed out, but raised money from their friends, put their their good names on the line for you. You feel like you know you're a bad ROI. You let them down. And and you know it's amazing because what looks like a loss in the short term, you know, God has a God is great, God has a plan, and uh, and it's not always a loss. And so I got a call out of the blue one day from from a State Department official who said to me, Hey, you know, have you ever heard of this special envoy to combat anti-Semitism position? I said, Yeah, I mean, I've heard of the position. I'm not following, but I'm not tracking, but I've heard of it. So, well, it's vacant. Um, you know, Secretary Pompeo is, is very eager to fill it, and there are a number of very good candidates. Um, but they asked me, is there anyone I would recommend in addition? He said, I think you'd be the best. Are you interested? And so, of course, I said, well, I have to talk to my wife. You know, moving 3,000 miles away, it's a big deal. I, but, but, you know, one thing led to another. Of course, my wife said, call him right back. It's a no-brainer. You've got to do it. Won't be, won't be easy on us. It won't be easy on us as a family, but it's the right thing to do. You're you know, you'll be serving our country. You'll be you'll be serving the Jewish people. What's better than that? Call them back. And so, you know, I threw my hat in the ring. One thing led to another. The rest is history. But here's why I said there's a moral to the story, and that is that he wouldn't have known. How did he know who I was? How did I get on the radar of of of, of the president's administration? It was because I was involved in leadership. And this particular gentleman. Uh, who's a fantastic guy? He ended up working for my team after after I joined the the State Department. Um, he was uh, he knew me both from Jewish leadership, and he knew me from from sort of partisan politics when I was running as a candidate and and did a you know did a serviceable job as a as as a a candidate both in a in a primary and in a general election. So the moral of the story is you know when you have opportunities in life, you jump on them. 
You take them. You do the very best you can. Don't ever be afraid of losing. Don't ever be afraid of failure. You know, fear of failure is a, is a, uh, you know, the, the biggest hobbler of, of opportunities and potential and success. And now you don't want to tilt at windmills. Of course, you have to be smart. You have to be prudent. You have to evaluate the opportunities you have. Is this realistic? But if you have a good opportunity, jump on it. And, uh, and almost always it will lead to good. I think that's part of the job as well is, you know, a question I, I've thought through is it's such an impossibly big, ambiguous, difficult to quantify task that you, you said yes to in terms of like fighting anti-Semitism. That's just an, inf I mean, hopefully it's not an infinite thing, but it kind of is. It's like, you know, how do you, how do, how do you frame both in terms of, I guess, how the state department frames, like the, the responsibilities of that person, but in a way that like, as a person who has to fill out your to-do list for the month and create projects and initiatives, like how do you tackle solving something so like impossibly vague or oh. making sense of something that and large? Lewis, that's a terrific question. And it's, um, it's, it's not easy. I mean, you know, when you take on a job like that, it's, you know, secretary Pompeo in, in the first meeting I had with him, um, I guess kind of a job interview, but I think he'd already kind of decided. Um, so here I am sitting down with the secretary of state. First words out of his mouth is, so you like a challenge, huh? And that's really, that's really true. I mean, you know, they don't call it the world's oldest hatred for nothing. It's been around for a while. And, and so on one hand, you think, well, can we ever beat this thing? You know, how, what can I possibly do in a, in a, you know, a blip of time throughout the, you know, the, 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 the millennia history of this human scourge that is Jew hatred, how can I possibly make a difference? The answer to that question is you can always make a difference. No human condition is insoluble. I firmly believe that. And if I, if I weren't an optimist, I wouldn't have taken the job and I wouldn't be continuing to do in, in, in a private capacity. And in, in terms of boards, I sit on, I sit on the, the advisory uh, council of the combat anti-Semitism movement. And uh, and I'm still very engaged in these issues. I wouldn't I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think we could really make a difference. So now, bottom line to your to your question, how do you organize yourself when you have a monumental Herculean task? Well, don't we all face that in life? I mean, in one way or another, the stakes might be different, the scale might be different, but we've all been there. At one point, you know, we've been we've been in situations where, like, no, where do I begin? You know, where do I begin to to you know to to take this thing apart or puts it or puts this thing together, depending on how you're looking at it. And, and, you know, the truth is like anything else, it was one thing at a time. So there are always exigencies you have to deal with and react to fires. You have to put out those require your immediate attention. And so, and so I had to react to events in the world. I mean, I'll give you one example in, in one week, one week in the life of, of the special envoy, there was a, a notoriously horrific anti-Semitic parade, uh, a far-right parade in, in Alst, um, in Europe, Belgium, that was <clears throat> vile, despicable. I mean, showed a hook-nosed Jews with rats sitting on their shoulders and money bags. I mean, just the worst kinds of anti-Semitic medieval, anti-Semitic caricatures. There was a book fair in Oman, where the protocols for, for the elders of Zion and Mein Kampf were featured all over. And Oman, by the way, this is a moderate Gulf state, right? We're talking about a friend, not, not a radical, not a hotbed of radicalism. 
Mein Kampf and Protocols, translated into Arabic, title after title after title, all over this book fair. And we had a rabbi, a very senior rabbi in Buenos Aires, who was beaten up to the point where his ribs were broken, and they were yelling anti-Semitic slurs. This was in the same week. And so you got to, when you're, when you're in charge of America's policies on anti-Semitism, and the special envoy is the, is the senior official on this and, and leads America's fight against, against this, this great evil, you've got to react, and you've got to decide how to react. And you've got to decide when not to react. By the way, that's also a decision. Sometimes, you know, you risk shining too much light on something that, that would benefit more than be harmed by your attentions. And so sometimes you have to make those decisions. But obviously, when there's physical violence, you've got to react. How do you react? Do you, do you react directly? Do you react with a statement? Do you go to the foreign capital or to the, or to the location um, and draw that kind of attention and bring the Jewish community together? Do you work through your embassy, through, through the ambassador to that country? So these are all things you have to do to deal with the immediate exigencies. However, you'll never be successful in a job like this if all you're doing is reacting. If all you're doing is putting out fires, sure, I mean, that's important, it's necessary, but you won't really advance a strategic ball in any, in any way. And so in addition to putting out fires, you've got to also have your eye on strategic initiatives and policy objectives. Those might be the same thing, they might not be the same thing, but you've got to have your eye on policies that you want to effect, and effecting a new policy isn't a simple thing in government. It requires extensive homework and clearances and buy-in from various parts of your agency and the interagency, and and uh, same with with you know kind of creative strategic initiatives. And so you've got to be doing that. And so we were doing both. We were definitely reacting. We were also being proactive diplomatically, uh, bilaterally and multilaterally. I mean, a lot of what I would do is 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 go to a foreign capital, sit down with foreign leaders. And and that required a lot of work because you're not just going to wave the flag. If you want to get things done, you do your homework and you know what's going well in that country and what's not going well in that country. And that involves a lot of homework. You know, I would bring in the major Jewish organizations to brief me. I would get classified briefings from the intelligence community. I would talk to our State Department apparatus that deals with that region, all the experts internally. Then when I got on the ground, I would, I would talk to uh, the ambassador immediately. And then, and only then, I would be ready to do my work. And even then, the first thing I would do is meet with the Jewish community and say, I'm coming to you first. I'm not going to your government first. I'm going to you first because I want to know what you're feeling. But by that time, I already knew what was going on in the ground, right? So it required a lot of homework to do diplomacy. And you know, you're, you're come to a foreign country and you're sitting with foreign leaders and you're saying, look, we love what you're doing. ABC, thank you. However, Let's talk about DEF. You know, there's a way to do it, and and so that all of that required a lot of 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 work, of focus, of proactivity. And while you're doing all of those things, you have to build a team. I was a special envoy with with no team. I had I had a couple of career people that well, that's that's a very important part of the team. So I didn't have no team. I had some career people assigned to me, but my team that I built was three times larger than that of than those of any of my predecessors. Um, and that's an indication, that's not credit to me, it's an indication of the kind of support I had from the secretary and ultimately from the president who made this an incredible priority for the United States. And so I recruited political appointees. 
that I then had to onboard, right? The onboarding process, which requires, you know, it's months and months and months of delay until you can get people on board. By the time we had anyone in place, it was already at the end. But I will tell you that that we had a team that was superbly well-organized. Um, I had an assistant special envoy who focused on the Middle East and Latin America. I had an assistant special envoy who focused on Europe and strategic initiatives, including BDS. And then I had a an assistant special envoy who focused on cyberspace. And I'm the first envoy ever to make it a, to make, to make cyberspace, the internet, its own global domain, which is so, so very important. And so it's a long answer to your question, but I wanted to give you a sense of how you go about tackling a problem like that. It's, it's one thing at a time, one foreign capital at a time, one incident at a time, at a time and one policy at a time. And when you're doing everything and you're putting it all together, the end, you're, you know, you find that you, you got a lot done and thank God, we, you know, we got a lot done. I noticed one thing uh, in my research about your initiatives, which was really focusing on the definition of anti-Semitism and coming to a standardized way of describing what it actually is. And I think that that represents kind of your line of thinking, which is finding the high leverage points to focus on, to create creative uh, strategy around to solve. And I think, you know, one of the obvious answers is probably education and, and getting in early. But I'm curious, what are the uh, the the leverage points that you found as Special Envoy as being the, the extremely important things uh, to change and to get right in, in the com- combating anti-Semitism? Yeah. So that's another great, great question. You know, there are a number of things. You know, this is a complicated problem and it manifests in different ways. And it comes from different ideological camps, right? And so Jew hatred manifests in so many different ways. And so there isn't a magic bullet. I wish there were. Um, and so you've got to really do it all. And one thing you had mentioned defining anti-Semitism. Well, you know, how can you effectively confront a threat if you don't know the threat? And that means defining and understanding the threat. And so thankfully, we have a global standard for doing that. It wasn't my standard. It was uh, a multilateral standard that the United States uses. It's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance Working Definition of Antisemitism. It's a definition that was put forth several years ago, actually a number of years ago, and then and then the latest iteration, you know, in, in just a few years ago, by this large multinational body, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, specifically for defining Jew hatred. And the power of the definition is in the examples that are included. In the definition, there are 11 examples of how anti-Semitism typically manifests in our contemporary society. Some of those examples capture, you know, the the kind of traditional medieval anti-Semitism, you know, Jews responsible for all the evils in the world and every malady and every human misfortune, or, or exercising some kind of conspiratorial control over society or various, uh, you know, institutions of society. But it also captures the so-called new anti-Semitism, you know, the Israel hatred, targeting the Jewish state as a Jewish co- collectivity, um, denying Jewish peoplehood and Jewish national self-determination, and 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 uh, uh, you know, focusing animus and hatred on Zionism. All of that is captured by the examples, which is why the IRA definition is a very powerful tool. So, one thing is defining 
anti-Semitism. That's very important because you get to then have a standard reference point that all of us can use and say, look, you might have a right under the First Amendment to say what you're saying, but I, I have a right to call it out. What you're saying is anti-Semitic. And, and here's why. And it allows us to discuss and learn about these things. It's a great tool for law enforcement in assessing anti-Semitic motivations of hate crimes and to be able to define anti-Semitism correctly and recognize it. You know, um, an FBI agent, uh, a supervisory agent for Coleyville, Texas, made a statement saying, you know, the assault on the Coleyville synagogue uh, wasn't anti-Semitic. Um, of course, they walked that back very quickly, thankfully. But had the IRA definition been used, I think they would have been, it would have been very easy to see why that particular attack was anti-Semitic in terms of the claimed motivations of the assailant. And so IRA is very important. Protecting Jewish community assets. I mean, that's job one, by the way. You, you can't have quality of life unless you're safe. And so the most important thing is, is providing people with physical security, making sure that Jewish communities are safe and protected. We have a nonprofit security grant program that the Department of Homeland Security um, issues for Jewish institutions, and not only Jewish, any nonprofit organization that might be targeted can apply for grants to harden that asset and, and to protect itself. Very important. And so working with states to supplement that, increasing the federal grants, all very important. Um, one of my top asks diplomatically when I was overseas was making sure that foreign countries allocated the, the sufficient resources to making sure Jewish communities are protected. Another thing we would do is, is counter the overwhelming, the tsunami of Jew hatred on the internet and social media. By the way, the main reason anti-Semitism has been rising is because of the internet and social media. Countering that without violating the First Amendment is a, has to be a key policy priority. Very proud to have organized and Secretary Pompeo convened the first ever U.S. government-sponsored conference on combating online hate. And we have to, of course, protect students on campus. You know, uh, our students in America and in Europe and in Canada, they're, they're besieged, besieged on many campuses, um, harassed and bullied and discriminated against for being proud Jews and for, for caring about, about the state of Israel, for being, for, for, for being Zionists and, and having that Jewish connection, spiritual connection to the Jewish homeland. That's outrageous. All of these things we have to do. And so those, Kyle, are the, are, are the key lever points. But, but let me add this, and this is very important. No wars are won, typically, without mounting an offense. If all you do is defend against the onslaught of the enemy, well, you might hold the enemy. You might even win a tactical victory or a, or a battle. But a strategic victory in a war you're not, you're not going to win unless you go on the offense. And so the question is, well, what's that lever point? How do you go on the offense against, I mean, defending is very easy to see, but, but how do you go on the offense against what is at its core really a worldview, right? It's an idea, and I would argue a spiritual sickness, ultimately. And there, what you said is so important, Kyle, education is critical. And education isn't only... Uh, education about anti-Semitism. I and mean, that's very often what people fall back on. Oh, education. Let's talk about the Holocaust. Well, yes. I mean, let's talk about the Holocaust. But I'm not talking about an education on anti-Semitism. I'm talking about an education in philo-Semitism. 
in, in an affirmative, proactive affection, appreciation of the remarkable Jewish story and the, and the values of Judaism that have shaped civilization, shaped all of civilization and, and the United States included. I think that is the real game changer in all of this. The only thing that really is going to work a paradigm shift in this fight and, and in the advantage we can gain in this fight is that. Because then, when you're talking about what the Jewish people have brought to the world, you put the bigots on the defensive. Instead of defending against their hatred, you define them as standing up against all of the things that the Jewish people have brought to the world. And that, I think, is absolutely critical. Yes, you have to defend. These measures are necessary, but they're insufficient. And I don't think we do enough of the, the proactive strategic fighting against this, this spiritual sickness that has been with humanity for so long. Yeah, I love these conversations about the big picture, the grand strategy of the government and of institutions and right, the Jewish community as a whole and the Jewish community within a particular country. And generally speaking, uh, what we like to cover on this podcast, especially with a lot of business interviews or a lot of authors is like, right, you made a business in this industry, you had this accomplishment, like, how do I apply that to my life? Or, you know, you are an expert in this topic, how do I acquire that skill? So, you know, one thing that, you know, is really tangible, for example, I, in, we met at a conference, an API conference, you know, several months ago, and you gave a speech about a lot of similar topics. And that speech, you know, I maybe lived in Scottsdale, my apartment for about four months, and I hadn't put up a mezuzah yet. And so like, during your speech, I made a note to like, go take care of that. Because oh my something goodness. something you had said had like reminded me or you know that, whether you said it implicitly with a prayer or like some I don't know the idea was sparked by your words and I went out and did it if the only effect my speech had was that it was the whole day was worth it because that is a wonderful thing and I'm I'm you made my day I'm delighted to you I'll, I'll tell you what reminded me of that as well I was like looking over on my balcony and sometimes the rabbi in this community likes to work at a coffee shop out of this building and I, I don't have my glasses on. So I saw someone who looked like his figure from like, I can, cause I can see into the, the courtyard and it's like the whole story connected the dots in my head as this, uh, as we were recording and I like saw a mask wearing, you know, like a, a classic rabbi fit of a uh, white button down shirt and black pants. And I thought that was a rabbi, but it was just someone else, but it brought the story top of mind, which is beautiful. But th the question is, what is the, you know, individuals, not to say that the people listening to this podcast don't have political aspirations, don't have nonprofit aspirations, uh, but a lot of people listening to this are very much at a stage in life where it's like, I need to kind of get my myself in order in terms of my business and my career and my entrepreneurship. But what do you think someone, you know, who's still putting maybe their career first and foremost, what are some still things that they should be doing as let's call it, let's assume for the sake of simplifying the question as well, like a U.S. citizen, uh, Jewish or non-Jewish to be, you know, contributing positively to the cause. I don't think everyone all of a sudden, you know, needs to make it their primary life's purpose as important as this is. But like, what are some individual responsibility type answers to the question? Yeah, nor nor would I expect it to, to to you know any random person to make it even even a random Jewish person to make this fight um, their you know their main endeavor. Um, look, I think that all of us, and you know, we met at an AEPI conference. I, you know, um, one thing AEPI taught me is that if something is worth doing, do it. Don't put it off. Right? I mean. You don't have to be an AEPI. AEPI changed my life in, in innumerable ways. But if all I'd done is focused on school and said, well, no, wait, I'm in, you know, I'm in a university and it's tough and I've got to get great grades. All true, by the way. But if, if my answer to that was, 
doing nothing other than than studying, I wouldn't be an AAPI. And I wouldn't have learned the remarkable transformative life lessons that AAPI taught me. So it was it was back a long time ago that I learned that lesson that, look, you can do many things in life. Indeed, you must do many things in life. And if something is worth doing, do it. Make time for it. You're never too busy. You know, make time for it and get it done and do it well. Don't, you know, don't half-ass it either. Do it well. Um, and, you know, things don't get easier. I mean, eventually you have a wife and kids, God willing. And, and boy, you think, you think you're busy now. I'm not saying you, but one thinks one is busy now. You know, it's a whole different level of busy and you still have to work and earn an income and you still have to be a leader in the community and you still have to do all of these things, right? So it only gets busier and busier. And so, and so don't put things off, do worthwhile things. Don't waste your time, but do worthwhile things. So I would say that's number one. Um, number two, anti-Semitism at its core. Yeah, you can do all of these things. You can get involved in, in, in organizations. At its core, anti-Semitism is a values problem. It's a, that's why I said it's a spiritual sickness. It comes from a deep sense of, of displacement over what is good and what is decent in the world. And, and that is dangerous. It's dangerous, first and foremost, for the person who harbors those views. Um, because, because they are on a path of, of, of ruin. But it's also dangerous for the rest of society. Anti-Semitism isn't the only such thing. I mean, look, look at the challenges we face as a country today. Americans are, are, are rent asunder. You know, you know, there's, there is factionalism like we haven't seen in a very, very, very long time. People are at each other's throats. There is hatred of, of others simply because of policy positions they take or, or the way they vote. I mean, this is madness. And, and it's, it's deeply unhealthy. And by the way, it also drives up other kinds of hatred, right? A, a, a climate of, of polarization and hostility uh, means that Jew hatred goes up as well. And so one thing that all of us can do, no matter what stage of life we're in, is get educated, engage on issues, and, and turn down the temperature. We need to breed a culture of respect, just like there is a vicious circle, and boy, have we been in that. There's also a virtuous circle, and I think those are even more powerful. But it requires all of us to, to you know, behave well, to treat each other with respect, to, to promote understanding, uh, mutual understanding. I mean, look, you know, most Americans mean well. Um, even when somebody is wrong, they usually mean well. And just because they might be wrong um, doesn't mean we shouldn't engage them. First of all, Hearing people out is a chance to persuade them, but it's also a chance to to learn ourselves, to to learn what makes other people tick, and and if anything, to make our position stronger by hearing arguments on the other side. And so I, I think that's all very, very important. So first of all, we've got to be responsible citizens, and responsible citizenship means being informed, engaging, and being responsible and respectful to our fellow Americans. The other thing is we should be leaders. And, and that means getting involved in communal organizations that make a difference, that make a difference for education, that make a difference for, for ending anti-Semitism and other kinds of, of hatred. Um, and no matter how busy you are at work, I mean, look, I was a big New York, you know, lawyer at a big firm. And this is before I got more senior and was married. I was crazy. I mean, working constantly, but I, I, I made time 
to do other th- worthwhile things. And I think that's the the critical message that that all of our viewers can can employ and and really live. Um, and that that would make a big difference. Yeah, I think um, a lot of this has religious basis. And I know that your position was mostly protecting uh, ethnic and, and cultural Jews, but the the religious basis of um, you know, Abrahamic religions being the basis of kind of society in general, and then uh, Abrahamic religions uh, kind of prescription for living a good life and living a meaningful life is kind of what you're talking about, right? And um, I, I wanted to go back kind of uh, kind of off topic here and ask you a question about your time in Iraq. I know that you um, were in the military and your your family actually is from Iraq, or maybe one side of your family, a, a grandfather. Um, and you actually led, I think, the first uh, Hanukkah or, or Jewish ceremony in Saddam Hussein's palace. And I, I was wondering if, you know, the, the weight of that event or the significance of it being, you know, having family from uh, Iraq hit you in that moment and, and what that was like. It was enormously powerful and, and um, a, a remarkable twist of fate, um, history coming full circle, that I'm the son of a refugee. I mean, my mother literally is a refugee who watched her father be arrested and put in prison for no reason other than he was Jewish. And my mother, as a young girl, had to flee. Um, I mean, there were people shooting at night. It's, it's, it's kind of a movie. And she and her mother, my grandmother, and my, and my uncle, who was a toddler at the time, w- without my grandfather, who still sat in prison, fled across the border to Iran, and then from Iran to Israel. The Shah of Iran, by the way, very different Iran than today, was had rescued Jews during the Holocaust and, and then was giving Jews asylum. Any Jew who could escape from Iraq was given the protection of the crown uh, in, in, in Iran. Amazing. And um, very grateful to, to, you know, to, to the Shah and to that dynasty for, for what they did for the Jewish people. So yes, it was a tremendous twist of fate. And here I am, as a U.S. military officer sent back to that country uh, with which I was so personally familiar, although I'd never been there. It's my culture, my background, the food, the language. And so it was a, an amazing experience. And then to have the chance to lead Jewish services in the former presidential palace of Saddam Hussein, the very same building from which the decision was made by that despicable tyrant only a few years earlier, to launch Scud missiles into Israel, to lead Jewish services in that building was was a a remarkable honor and very moving. And by the way, makes the point that I had made in answer to your last question, which is how you can get involved. There's a perfect example. You know, boy, talk about being busy. I was in a war zone. I was a deployed soldier in war. You know, I, I, I didn't need to concern myself with leading Jewish service. I mean, that wasn't my day job, as you can imagine. But the opportunity came about. And I said, of course, I'm going to do this. Why wouldn't I do it? There was also some risk. Some people said, don't don't endanger yourself. You're, you're already in enough danger to be known as the, you know, the Jew who's leading services. When you're going out, you know, I, I was leading an anti-terrorism team. So I was out in the red zone all the time. I wasn't in a protected area. I had missions all over the country. Why do you, you know, why are you going to, tar- you know, potentially make yourself a target that way? I consider that it's not irrational, but at the end of the day, I said, look, you know, this is an opportunity to, to 
not only express myself Jewishly, but to bring Jewish service members and civilians together um, in a place that had been a place of such such unadulterated evil and and bring holiness and spirituality to that place. And, and that, by the way, is kind of a paradigm for everything we were doing in Iraq, right? Resanctifying land defiled by, by, a, by a bloodthirsty tyranny. And, and so it was a tremendous, tremendous uh, opportunity, and, and I'm so grateful for it. And it was so deeply moving to me, but, but also to all of the people who participated in those services. It was amazing. I had Jewish service members and civilians who came and they said, you know, I, I haven't been to a synagogue, you know, since I was a bar mitzvah. And we never go to synagogue. And, and they wanted to come every week. They felt drawn to this. There was some, there was a, a, a spiritual power to doing this there in that, in that place. And it was, it was incredibly powerful. And I, I, I'm, I'm enormously grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. I think one, it's, it's a challenging question, or at least I'm anticipating it being a challenging question. But what is it about? I mean, it's your person putting yourself at personal danger and committing to like this really, again, personal danger. Like, what is it about whether it's yourself personally in your story or just religion in general? Like, what is it about Judaism that's so important to you to like, because it's, you know, it's why be a Jew despite like how difficult it is or yeah. in a moment like that? Like, why, like, what is it about carrying the message or sharing the, or like propagating the story? that makes someone like it could be yourself specifically in that situation but like why is the value of the religion and the religious experience and the people and the tradition so important to you to to, yeah, to take on yeah. something like that yeah it's a, it is a difficult question in the sense it's not difficult to answer it's only only its depth and breadth is difficult but it's it's for me it's very easy to say what how why judaism is important to me but let me first before i even say that i think religion is very important and i think spiritual I, I think for for a human soul to be properly nourished there has to be a spiritual component we've got to know that we're serving something greater than ourselves and i think that's that's deeply important you know one of the things that led me to lead jewish services was um was a a, a notice that had been posted on the wall of this incredibly lavish marble room that was, you know, in this palace that be, had become a chapel. It was a makeshift chapel. And it was a, a list of services that the chaplain, the, the coalition chaplain had posted. You know, in the, in the military, in the military, spirituality is, and, and religion is central. And so it was Catholic Mass on Sunday and Protestant worship on Sunday and Shia and Sunnah. I mean, all of this was on the list posted by the U.S. chaplain but there wasn't anything Jewish on the list. And I said, that can't be, I, I, I couldn't, you know, believe. So I went to the chaplain and I said, I said, sir, you know, is there a reason? I was at the time a Lieutenant, he was a Colonel. I said, you know, I, my, my irritation was muted. I said, sir, uh, you know, I see there's, you know, there's nothing Jewish on the list. Is there a reason for that? And his answer was, was so beautifully emblematic of, 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 of America and the army and the, the military and the chaplaincy. He said, yeah, there's a reason. Um, there's nobody to lead it. I've been asking everybody. I certainly, I'm an Episcopalian. I certainly can't lead it. Can you lead Jewish services? So that's kind of how it started. So, so first of all, Lewis, I'll say that I, I believe in the central importance of religion, of spiritual grounding. 
I think it's deeply important for us as people, as adults. I think it's deeply important for the, for the proper rearing of children. But now to the point of, the, of your question, why is my Jewish identity so important? Because I think that, first of all, it's, it is who I am. Uh, it's inseparable from me as a person. I cannot define myself in any other way as, as, being, as being a Jew and a Jewish American. I'm very proud of that as well. But, but, but spiritually, ethnically, by lineage, I'm Jewish. That's who I am. And for me, um, that is a key part of my identity. Now, that doesn't mean that my identity is something that I would necessarily work to, to propagate, but I happen to believe that Jewish connection and Jewish spirituality is a deeply powerful force for the world. Um, it's no controversy to say that, that the Jewish people have, have led humanity's march toward a more godly and decent world. Um, when you look at, at what the world was like when the Jewish people came into being, even before when the Hebrews came into being and started to introduce to the world these radically new concepts of one God with one standard for all of humanity, where and, and for every human being, each and every human being on earth to have been created in the image of God. Think of what that means and what that implies, that every human being has infinite value. A, a, a spark of godliness in each person. Could you imagine how different the world would be if each and every one of us walked around and lived our lives actually believing that? Not just believing it theoretically, but living like we believed it? How would we treat others? If we looked at another human being and said, there is a spark of the Almighty who created heaven and earth in that person, how would we treat that person? The world would be radically different. And the world is radically different. With all the bloodshed and with all the, the, the savagery we're seeing in the world today, it is nothing like the way it was. Nothing like the way it was in the days of the pagans. And so Judaism brought revolutionary, transformative ideas to the world, to humanity, to civilization. And those ideas, I said, I'm very proud to be, to be a Jewish American. Well, America was founded on those ideas. The founding fathers of the United States not implicitly, explicitly made reference to the Hebraic story, to the biblical story of the Jewish people and to the values of Judaism, including, yes, being created in the image of God, that, that was, was defined their, their whole venture, the whole venture of, of creating America and building this country. And so are those things worth preserving? I think you bet they're worth preserving. They're worth fighting for. And they're worth, they're worth bringing Jews together over those values, strengthening the Jewish people and creating Jewish learning and Jewish understanding. And so, and that's why I'm so passionate about what I do. I think this is, I don't know if it's a silly question or not, maybe this one has an easier answer. Uh, but first of all, I, I, every time I, I don't know if you're familiar with Jordan Peterson uh, yeah. as, a, as a public intellectual or public figure, but his, you know, lecture series on the psychological significance of the Bible was one of the first, and when I say the Bible, the lecture series starts with the Old Testament goes through a lot of that same just series of just, I don't want to call it obvious statements because it's not obvious and people don't realize it. But after it's just impossible to not see that, like how the fundamentals of the, it's all the stuff that's invisible, right? Like the air around you and you don't realize it, just like the stuff that is the, the premise of modern society is all built upon these fundamentals. Uh, one other thing that really, again, inspired me during the speech you gave at this conference uh, was just the, I don't know, maybe this is really tapered 
tapered or affected by the life experience I've had. I've just rarely found non-Orthodox scholarly Jews, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like my, and maybe that was just my upbringing in a very reformed synagogue that was very cultural, but what was your Jewish education like formally? Because I, I just, maybe that's just a really random and I haven't had the broader experience to just like find another somewhere in the middle. But I, I just, in my experience, only find like Orthodox Jews to be like studied in like the broader history of the Jewish people and like the practical implications of the modern value and like truly being informed by it in like a intellectual adult capacity. Whereas a lot of the reformed Jews I, I know tend to have like only a elementary and I say elementary in like a literal sense. It's like their appreciation of Jewish values are like, we do Hanukkah because there's Hanukkah and there's lights and stuff. Like just like what you tell like a fifth grader and like the level of appreciation they'll have is I feel like since a lot of reformed Jews stop learning at their bar mitzvah level, they basically just have a childish worldview of Judaism. And so I, when I see someone who's not reform have that <laughs> sophisticated appreciation, it makes me excited. So I'm kind of curious in general, like, do you have like a, a cadence where you like study? How, how did you develop like this adult Jewish perspective? Because I only really developed it by spending a lot of time with Orthodox Jews. Yeah, so that's a great question. Let me first of all say what your beautiful um, description of these principles being very much like the air around us um, that we 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 don't see. Yes, but we don't see the air around us. But what else do we do with the air around us? We take it for granted. Um, and that really is what I think all of us need to work so so hard against that we we I mean, humanity has a limitless capacity to take for granted its blessings. And, and really we have to, this is by the way, a Jewish principle as well. I mean, if, if, if there's one thing about, if you, if you had to, if you had to summarize Judaism, it would be in the, the power of gratitude, right? Gratitude ultimately to God, but, but not to take things for granted, whether it's the food we eat or the, or, or the, or, or the fact that we're alive or what we have around us. And so I think it's very important that we not take our, our values for granted, that we Americans not take the, the, you know, the, the privilege and the, and the strength and the freedoms of the United States for granted. I mean, I think it's very, very important we understand where that came from, how it was built, um, with the enormous sacrifices of generations of Americans who deeply believed in these concepts. And if we don't, we imperil our future because these things are not self-perpetuating. They might be for a while. We're strong enough to maybe be able to be sloppy and not lose our country. But but that's only that'll only buy us time. Eventually, we we can lose our country. Anybody can lose their country, and so it's deeply important that we not take for granted the air around us, and we understand those principles, and not only understand them but but fight for them. So that's first of all. Second of all, your question about Orthodox Judaism. I might not be the best example you're looking for. Um, uh, I am Orthodox. <laughs> I am Orthodox affiliated. I was raised Orthodox. I, I went to a yeshiva for a number of years. Um, I was bar mitzvah in an Orthodox synagogue, and my my eldest daughter is in an Orthodox high school. And so, uh, and so, I kind of, I guess, I guess, very much validate those views. Now, let me say, in defense of non-Orthodox Jews, there are some who are very scholarly. I mean, you know, there there are certainly, um, obviously, there are some. You know, rabbis certainly of of other denominations who know a great deal, far more than I. Um, there are professors of of academies of non orthodox, you know, academies that are that know far more than I. But let me say delicately that I think you're getting to a real your question touches on a on a real issue um, in diaspora 
American society. And that is, there is, I mean, the, the chief threat to the survival of American Jews is not anti-Semitism. It might be a, a very big threat to the life of some Jews, and some Jews tragically were murdered, the most horrible thing. But as a community, the chief threat to our survival as a community is not anti-Semitism. The chief threat to our survival as a community is assimilation, is that kind of lack of knowledge, that that very, very elementary, I would say elementary on the, on the part of some, many Jews have no knowledge at all about the, the very, the most basic fundamental tenets or historical facts about the Jewish people as a national ethnicity or about Judaism as a faith, the, the most basic facts. That is not sustainable. I will say it, that I can take to the bank. It is not sustainable. And it is a crisis. There is a crisis of Jewish education in our country. And, uh, and you know, I was just, I was just educated on a, on a very beautiful statement that a, a rabbi in Israel, one of these big rabbis with an enormous following, he said, you know, you can, you can divide the Jewish community on, on the following categories. It's not observance law. It's not Ashkenazi, Mizrahi, Sephardi. It's not, you know, Shabbat and not Shabbat. It's not, he said, are the, is the family committed to a full, complete Jewish education or not? He says, that is the way you divide the community. Because if, if a family is committed to giving their kids a full and complete Jewish education, and a full and complete Jewish education means a Torah Jewish education. Typically, you find that in Orthodox schools, a Torah education. That is the issue. What you know, what you eat and how you keep and how much you keep and whether you drive and what you how long you wait and whether you you know, I'm not gonna say that it's not important. You know, observance is important. At some point, you know, if you believe something, you've got to walk the walk and you know, and not only talk the talk. But but that's less important. We all have variations, we all have different degrees. You know, I'm I'm Iraqi, they're Ashkenazim, there are people who are more observant, people who are less observant. But ultimately, do we have the basis? Are we on the same page of the playbook? And if we don't know our history, then we're the, then we don't know the playbook. We're not only not on the same page, we don't know the playbook. And it's not only Orthodox scholars and rabbis who are saying that. I'll tell you a beautiful thing that, that my friend and our brother, Rabbi Wolpe, David Wolpe, a great conservative rabbi, very, very famous conservative rabbi, one of the most influential, who said, I happened to be listening to him and he, I happened to be where he was, he was giving a speech. And he said, let me ask you a question. If you were digging around the attic of your family's ancestral home, and you noticed a little floorboard, a plank out of place, you say, huh, that's odd. And you noticed that it's a panel and you opened it up. And underneath that board, you found untouched the history of your family, a book that was the history of your ancestors your personal family, your lineage. He says, what would you do? Would you read it? He asked. He said, would, he said, of course you'd read it. Nobody could stop you from reading it. You wouldn't eat lunch or dinner that day. You'd, you'd tear into that with such, with, with such passionate curiosity to know your history, your people, your history. He says, but why don't we do that? That's what the Tanakh is. The Bible is the story of our people. Yes, there's something about the creation of the world and so on and so on. But Abraham appears very, very, very early in the Bible. And from then on, it is the personal, parochial, narrow history of our people. 
And so don't we need to know that? Doesn't every Jew need to know? And so, so that is the, the, the chief problem. And I, I think that, that we, we are desperately in need of this. Now, what is, you asked about how your audience, your viewers should live their lives, right? How do you live your life when you're, when you're, you know, a prof- young professional or you're running a business? If you haven't gone to, to a day school, Orthodox day school or to non-Orthodox day school, you're not going to leave your work and go check into school. You're not going to go back to grade to, to, you know, to grade two or three and, 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 and capture the education you've missed that way. So what are you going to do? Well, you can learn. You can read. You know, there's a great rabbi who, who wrote a book, who, who realizing this problem, wrote a book called Jewish Literacy, where he said, you know what? What is the very basic things that a Jew needs to know in order to be literate? Not, not a scholar, not depth, not scholarship, not a, an advanced degree, but a literate Jew, basic knowledge. So he wrote this book. It's a, a thick book, but every chapter is a page, a page, because all it does is give you a little bit about that topic. And the first section of the book is history. The second section of the book is, 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 uh, is, is calendar, the, cal- the religious calendar. Third section is life cycle. Fourth section is basic texts. There's a section on, on the Holocaust and Zionism and modern Israel. And it, 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 each chapter is a page. I think, by the way, that you want anybody in, in your, any viewer who is Jewish listening to this ought to, ought to buy that book, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, Jewish Literacy, and read that book. He also wrote the Rebbe's book, the Rebbe biography. He did one. He did yeah. write the Rebbe's book. He's written a lot. He's written, yeah. he's a prolific writer. But that particular book, I think, is something that is such a light lift for anybody. And it can change your whole life. It can change your entire life. My sister, I'm, I'm not Jewish. My sister uh, was, lived in Hawaii for some time. And um, she was meeting with this older woman in her church. Um, and the older woman was like, I think she was playing the piano or, or, or doing something. I think she was in her 70s. And my sister went up to her and was like, I wish that I had, you know, started learning to play the guitar earlier. And the older woman got visibly upset with her and was like, you are 24 years old. If I had stopped learning when I was your age, I would be dead. I would like, and, and, and I think about that often in terms of, um, my ability to get up to speed on the things that I need to be up to speed on. Uh, and I think religion and, and that, or, you know, and your, your personal identity are up there in the, in the order of operations of things that you need to know. I know that this is not a, a Jewish show. Um, the reason why I started, you know, my answer to Lewis's question on religion generally is because I think that's something that applies to all of your, all of our viewers today. You know, 100%. Whatever, whatever your background, you know, become spiritually grounded, go to church, go to mosque, you know, no, you know, the, these, these major Abrahamic faiths, and by the way, some other faiths as well, have remarkably beautiful statements about, about, you know, the value of life and about humanity and about how to live and how to treat others and how to raise kids. Don't deprive yourself of that, you know? And so if, if you're Jewish, Go go back to our roots and our history. But if you're if you're not, you know, tap into the 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 deep and wonderful and beautiful wellspring of 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 spiritual beauty in in your faith tradition. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to ask one last question. Um, 
I'm going to try and make it pointed. So you ran for Congress, uh, I think, in 2014. And there were a lot of problems in the world then. There's a lot of problems in the world now. If you were to successfully run a campaign now, what would be the number one most important topic to you? Well, it all depends where, right? I mean, if, if I were running... If I were running for president, it would be different than if I were running for for Congress. I ran for Congress. You know, the 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 you know, the top issue I had then was was the top two issues were public safety and education. Um those would things have only gotten worse in both of those categories in Los Angeles County, I can tell you. So so those were would absolutely be the issues. And and those would always be the issues because because Public safety is the government's most important job, right? I mean, the most fundamental basic responsibility a government has to its people is to protect them physically. That's number one. And so public safety always has to be job number one. But then education is, is so critically important. You know, I, I mean, I was, a, I was a gang prosecutor for years. You know, when you prosecute gangs in Los Angeles, you're prosecuting young people. I prosecuted, you know, minors, so 16 and 17, but then I prosecuted young adults from 18 to whatever. And, you know, you realize, you get to know your defendants and their lives and their backgrounds, and you, and you realize what utter ruin these kids come from. Now, of course, none of that absolves them from the terrible things they've done for which they absolutely should be punished. But the hell that they've been through as kids, that's on us. That's not on them. That's on us as a society. And it is a disgrace. I'll use that word because it's not too strong a word. It is a disgrace that we allow the wealth and, and privilege and, and beauty of America, communities to exist that neglect kids the way kids are neglected in some schools. Some schools. Some schools are wonderful. But, but far too many schools are failing. And when schools fail, we fail in our responsibility to our most treasured asset which is our children. There's no more important asset we have as a society. And so that for me was my number one issue as, uh, as I was running. It would still be my number one issue. Um, but of course, look, I mean, we, we have uh, profound economic problems. We have a national debt that is talk about children. I mean, we are, we are uh, stealing from the next generation to finance ourselves. That's what national debt is. We are literally, we are littering, literally stealing from our children in what we're doing. It's, it's, it's unconscionable. And uh, we have a Southern border that is catastrophic. It's a human, it's a human rights crisis, not only a national security threat, which it certainly is. It's a human rights crisis on our Southern border. Um, you know, our America's leadership in the world is, is, is being questioned. Our ability to deter aggression is obviously not what it was. Um, you know, we have a lot to fix. We have a lot to fix, but like anything else, you know, to now bring it full circle to, to your first question, Lewis, how do you tackle a, a problem that seems so complicated? You were asking about combating anti-Semitism. It's the same thing for America, how to bring America back, you know, to being fiscally sound and economically prosperous and, and secure in its borders and leading in the world and, 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 and providing great opportunities for its citizenry. Well, you know, it's one thing at a time. It ain't hard. You need good leaders who are going to focus on it, fix things, one thing at a time fixed things. And boy, do I pray we're going to have that soon. I think that's a great note to end on. Elon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I don't think you're super active online, but if there is a specific place for people to connect with you or get in touch or follow along with your work, 
Uh, now would be a good time to mention any of that. Well, I'm on Facebook. Elon S. Carr is my public page on Facebook, at Elon S. Carr on Twitter. And uh, I invite uh, I invite your uh, your audience to, to follow. I appreciate it. And let me tell you what a pleasure it's been for me to spend time with you. I can't thank you enough for devoting a part of your lives to uh, to important issues and to uh, and to elevating uh, the worldview of your audience. So thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's been a real honor.